Welcome to the second episode of Sample Size One, a podcast about unrepeatable experiments in music and art. I'm Dave Hillowitz. So my grandmother was a lot of things. She was an abstract expressionist painter, a social worker, a collector of antiques. But as far as the internet is concerned, she had just one real claim to fame. She was the associate producer of a movie called Zombie Nightmare. Which is true, although it's certainly not how she would have expected to be remembered. You see, what I haven't yet mentioned was how my grandmother earned her living. She ran a one-woman film distribution company. She was in that line of work for 30 years, and yet Zombie Nightmare is actually the only entry on her IMDb profile. Though, I have to say, if you're going to have just one credit, this is a good one to have. For one, the movie actually stars some pretty famous people. Adam West plays the police chief. This is 20 years after his Batman days. And Tia Carrere, the actress who would go on to play Wayne Campbell's girlfriend in Wayne's World, she's also in it. Oh yeah, the other thing about this movie is that it's legendarily bad. It has a 15% user score on Rotten Tomatoes and a 2.2 rating on IMDb. As you may know, getting a 2.2 on IMDb is quite an accomplishment, actually. It's such a low score that it actually puts Zombie Nightmare squarely on the IMDb's bottom 100 list. Think about that for a second. There are over 350,000 movies in the Internet Movie Database, and Zombie Nightmare has somehow managed to be one of the 100 worst. By the way, if you're listening to all this and you're thinking, this sounds like something Mystery Science Theater 3000 would have a field day with, well then you'd be right. They opened their 1994 season with Zombie Nightmare, and you can actually still purchase their version of the movie on DVD. So, as you've no doubt figured out by now, this episode is going to focus on Zombie Nightmare. My plan is to do a deep dive into this extremely minor footnote in my family's history. I'm going to rewatch the movie and try to get to the bottom of what makes it so bad. But I'm also going to reach out to people who are actually involved in making it. Terrible movies don't make themselves, and a movie this bad has to have a lot of secrets. Here goes. You ready? Let's get totally tanked up, go yeah. down to the dance at Lincoln, <laughs> and we'll pick up some sleazy chicks. Yeah. Right. Yes, that's an actual line from this movie. Fasten your seatbelts. Okay, so I've just rewatched the movie, and I've got tons of things to talk about, but none of it is going to make any sense unless I take you through the plot. Okay, let's do this. The movie opens with this flashback to 1950s Canada. It's supposed to be the U.S., but there's so many signs written in French that you can tell that it was obviously shot in Quebec. A family's coming home from a Little League game, and they come across these two greasers assaulting a woman by the side of the road. The woman is black, and the attackers are white, which feels important within the movie. The guys kind of look like members of the Jets from West Side Story. Anyway, the family comes across this, and the dad says, Excuse me, boys, what's going on here? To which one of the greasers replies, Stay out of this, old man. We were only having some fun, old man, but if you want us to cut it out, then we'll cut you out. Okay, so perhaps not weirdly, the dad is not phased by their threats at all, and he throws himself on the attackers, and he protects the woman, but then he ends up getting stabbed. As you can hear, all of this is witnessed by his horrified wife and small son. And there's the music that lets you know that this is going to be really important later. Fast forward to 1986. Tony, the small boy from the Little League field, has now grown into a ridiculous 80s man with huge muscles and a beautiful blonde mane. The character of Tony was played by a Canadian metal singer named Thor. Thor also provided a lot of the songs for the soundtrack, which is by far the best thing about the movie. Anyway, Tony's a good kid who loves his mom, something we learn immediately 
when he A, offers to go buy her some milk, and B, beats up some thugs at the corner store when they try to hold the place up. The fight scene looks ridiculous, kind of like a boxing movie from the 30s, but even so, what a cool guy, right? Well, just in case you failed to take away what you were supposed to from that scene, the convenience store owner, who seems to have gone to the Super Mario school for offensive Italian accents, says, You're a good boy, Tony. Your papa would be proud of you. Grazie. Grazie, Tony. Grazie. Grazie. Anyway, as he's leaving the convenience store, having performed his act of local heroism, Tony is run over by a bunch of teenagers in a gold Mercedes who don't even bother to stop to see if he's okay. You see, Michael Moore? Canada has problems, too. And here's where things actually start to get kind of weird. Instead of calling the police, the owner of the convenience store picks up the boy's body and brings it to his mother's house. Oh, Tony, who could have done this terrible thing? Please, please help me, help me. Oh, Tony. His mother also chooses not to involve the authorities, opting instead to call her friend, who's a voodoo priestess. Earl, run over to Molly McKenby's house. Bring her back here right away. Sure, Mrs. Washington. Louisa. What do you want with that crazy Haitian? Never mind, Hank. Anyway, the priestess shows up, and she utters an incantation over the boy's body. He will be in a state between life and death. And turns him into a zombie. <laughs> Makes sense, right? The rest of the movie is actually pretty straightforward. The zombie wakes up and, spoiler alert, kills each of the teenagers who ran him over. All throughout this, two cops, one good and one crooked, investigate the murders. Adam West plays the crooked cop. That's right, the man who's billed at the top of the VHS box is actually the bad guy. Not only that, he doesn't show up until 45 minutes into the movie. And then when he does, he's only in it for like 10 minutes. So anyway, as I was saying, the zombie version of Tony kills the teenagers, and that's pretty much the plot of the whole movie. Right off the bat, you'll notice something really interesting about this story. The zombie in this movie is the good guy. He has a real sense of justice. In most post-George Romero zombie movies, the zombies just sort of move forward until they find a brain to munch on. Not so here, and I have to say, it's nice to see a zombie who actually stands for something. Also, the zombie in this movie seems to do most of his killing with a baseball bat, love of baseball being the only aspect of Tony's personality that carried over from his life as a living human. A final thing that's worth mentioning about the plot is that zombieism isn't contagious in this movie. It doesn't matter how much you want in, the only way you can become a zombie is if a voodoo priestess turns you into one. This is actually a return to the roots of zombie movies. In interviews, John Fasano, the screenwriter, actually name-checks White Zombie, the first ever zombie movie. So he definitely knew what he was doing. The whole thing would be kind of awesome if the execution weren't so terrible. The film dedicates an inordinate amount of screen time to showing us that the teenagers who are about to run over Tony are a bunch of jerks and that they definitely deserve to be killed by a vengeful zombie. Mostly we get shots of them at the local ice cream joint, a place called the Twist and Creme. Remember, this was shot in Quebec. By the way, the Twist and Creme still exists. It got four stars on Yelp, although it looks pretty dinky in the Google Street View photos. Also, one of the positive reviews is from a fan of this movie, so you might want to keep your expectations in check. Anyway, the leader of the pack is this kid named Jim. He's actually the one who's driving when the teenagers run over Tony Washington. Jim is played by Sean Levy, who's now a Hollywood director. So first we get a bunch of scenes of him trying to coerce women into sleeping with him. I promise you've never seen anything like it. He gets shot down again and again with ironclad zingers such as... I'm old enough to be your older sister. That's right. I'm old enough to be your older sister. Doesn't seem like much of a deal breaker, does it? They clearly meant the line to be, I'm old enough to be your mother, 
but then when they cast the actress, they realized that she couldn't plausibly make that claim. Next, we get this terrible scene of the teenagers being thrown out of a nightclub for pulling a knife on another patron. As they're being thrown out, the bouncer says, Okay, now you all come back here real soon, when you're over 21. To which Jim replies, Well, man, I wouldn't come back to this hole if I was 41. Yeah. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> and then finally, there's the legendary spaghetti scene. A scene so weird and embarrassing that every single person who's ever reviewed this movie has mentioned it. In this scene, we see Jim, back home, exhausted from a night of running over protagonists. He's rummaging through the fridge as his mother berates him about the family car having gone missing. Eventually, he finds some leftover spaghetti, which he starts just cramming into his mouth. Here's his mother's take on the whole situation. You are disgusting. You're not going to get to your next birthday if you don't get your act together. Stop yours. What did you say, you disrespectful punk? At this point, Jim throws the pasta at her face and storms out. She screams, but due to bad sound editing, her reaction comes almost a second too late. Ah! Ah! The final shot of the scene is her picking a strand of spaghetti out from her cleavage. I think that was supposed to be funny, but it's hard to know with this movie. I have to give the filmmakers some credit here. As awful as I find this scene, it is memorable. So there's so many more things that are worth mentioning about this movie. But rather than just list them all, I figured it would be fun to reach out to somebody who's actually there. Someone who could give us a first-hand account of what it was like to film this masterpiece. To that end, I contacted Frank Dietz, the actor who plays the good cop. Frank sent me an extensive account of what it was like to work on Zombie Nightmare, which he was kind enough to read for your benefit. Here he is, talking about the notes he was given by director Jack Bravman. When they were finally ready, I was ushered onto the set and given my first direction by Jack. In this scene, you're Don Johnson, he told me. Okay, I nodded back. Uh, this turned out to be the first in a long list of actors I would be instructed to be. Uh, besides Don, I would later be called upon to become Burt Reynolds, Steve McQueen, and Clint Eastwood. Jack's direction style had a crazy effect on some of the actors. Listen to the way the guy who plays the medical examiner chose to read his lines. Ah, Frank, nice to see you can make it to the clam baker. Now the boys are trying to fish Lover Boy out of a swimming pool full of blood. According to Frank Dietz, Jack told the actor that he should try to play the part like Columbo. Guess you gotta be careful what you ask for. Here's Frank again. As the production continued, Jack's direction became more and more, shall we say, conservative. Jack decided that close-ups were really unnecessary and that the audience would see the same thing in the long shot. But the elimination of those close-ups certainly helped to move production along at a crackerjack pace. And you can bet it spared the editor having to make all those difficult choices. Probably the most hilarious example of this is the zombie resurrection scene, starring Manushka Rigaud as the voodoo priestess. Jack Bravman, the movie's director, chose her because he felt she looked like Tina Turner. Although, I have to say, the resemblance is not striking. Anyway, in a normal cheesy horror movie, one way to build up tension in a scene like this is to cut back and forth between the medium shot and various close-ups. As the incantation progresses, you show the physical world start to change, and the pace of the editing speeds up too. Maybe we get some atmospheric effects. A thick fog rolls in, or the wind picks up out of nowhere. Behind it all, some tense, dissonant string music that rises to a breaking point right as the coffin lid swings open and the zombie comes to life. But not in this movie. Here we get an unbroken shot of an embarrassed-looking woman standing next to an apple crate, surrounded by a bunch of candles. Instead of tense backing music, we get the eerie sound of her incantation. Tonight, I will need your help. And what you see and hear 
You must never Eventually, she opens the apple crate to reveal that we were supposed to understand that box to be a coffin. Inside is Tony. He's wearing a hoodie and sweatpants. After about three more minutes of this, he suddenly wakes up and growls like Chewbacca. He's a zombie now. This entire scene, which should be the scariest scene in the movie, is not only not scary, it's insanely boring. Of course, there are other times when the movie makes the opposite mistake. Instead of one medium shot, we get only close-ups. There's an entire scene where Frank Dietz is talking to Adam West at the police station. By all accounts, they were filmed on the same set at the same time, but because they never appear together in any of the shots and their sight lines don't match up, you'd swear they were filmed in different rooms. Even better, there's a long stretch of that same scene where Adam West is just openly reading from his script. Here's a piece of the DVD commentary where the late screenwriter John Fasano talks about how that happened. Well, you know, actors actors will sometimes take a glance down at notes or something to remind them of thing, and they'll look back up at the other actor, secure in the fact that the editor, if they've edited a film before, will cut to the other actor while they're looking at their page. And the editors who did this film, I think it was the first thing they ever edited. They were young kids, and they offered Jack to do it for free. And so they just stayed on Adam while he spoke, even if he was looking at his script. And everyone on Earth has mentioned in a review of this how funny that was that Adam is reading his script. I'm not saying that the movie would have been gone with the wind if they had <laughs> cut away from Adam when he was looking at his script, but it wouldn't have been embarrassing. Unbelievably, that actually wasn't the worst editing mistake they made. Here's John Fasano again. When the editors cut together the first trailer for the movie, they had these great shots in it, and when the movie came out, there's a lot of shots in here where I said, where is that close-up of John, and where's that close-up of Frank? And what they had done is they had made the trailer with the original camera negative, because they were like first-time editors. And so a lot of the best physical shots in the movie were in the trailer, and they could not be in the movie. So it was like the shots which were the second or third choice are in the movie. So who was the talentless hack who edited this movie? Well, turns out he's not a talentless hack at all. His name is David Franco, and he went on to become an award-winning cinematographer, famous for his work on such shows as Game of Thrones and Boardwalk Empire. Zombie Nightmare was the first movie he ever worked on, and he did it for free. Just goes to show you, everyone starts somewhere. Anyway, one of the reasons I want to make this podcast episode is that, as a kid, I wasn't allowed to see this movie. In 1988, when I was just seven, my mother and I drove up to Canada to represent my grandmother at the Montreal Film Festival. We spent all three days in the exhibition space, which was just this giant hotel auditorium filled with guys in suits trying to sell awful movies. Our entire booth consisted of me, my mother, and a tiny TV on a stand that was showing Zombie Nightmare on loop. And I was standing in front of it, and every time I tried to turn around to get a glimpse of the screen, my mother would say, don't turn around, it's too scary. That's actually not a very good impression. But anyway, as a result, I didn't end up seeing the movie till I was 22. The funny thing about my mom's warning is that, little did she know, the movie isn't scary at all. And there are so many reasons for that. Part of the problem was the original decision to structure the movie as a revenge story. It's a lot harder to make a revenge movie scary because everybody already knows who's going to die. And in the case of this movie, we actually want those characters to die, so the movie's really working against itself. No, the only way that they could hope to spook us is by inventing new and horrible ways for these people to get killed. Which is a problem here, because they all die the same way by the hands of the zombie, and the zombie's not very frightening. In fact, he seems to look different every time we see him. It turns out there's a great reason for that. Here's Frank Dietz again. The zombie problem started pretty early on. 
Uh, playing the part of Tony the Zombie was a bodybuilder and stuntman named Pee-wee. Uh, Pee-wee's voracious appetite was devouring the entire catering budget in the first week. I actually liked Pee-wee. He was, he was good company, but uh, Jack didn't agree, and uh, Pee-wee was relieved of his zombie duties and sent packing. Though we were one zombie down. Around this time, superstar Billy Graham was a famous wrestler. Uh, he was hired to play Tony's doomed father and the surprise second zombie. He arrived at the Montreal airport waiting to be picked up. And there he sat for something like eight hours. It seems that with all that was going on, the production simply forgot that Mr. Graham was scheduled to be uh, picked up that day. Finally, the furious wrestler gave up and boarded a flight back home. We were now two zombies down, and the frustrated makeup men were once again forced to apply the custom-fitted appliances to a different actor. As you know, the main zombie ended up being played by John Michael Thor of the band Thor. But since the production had already spent a week filming Pee-wee, they ended up using scenes filmed with both actors in the final movie. Unfortunately, even with their zombie makeup on, the two actors actually looked quite different. Pee-wee is much taller than John Michael Thor, and Thor had long hair. Also, while Thor's zombie drags his foot like a classic movie zombie, Pee-wee walks in a very unscary straight line. To make matters worse, because of the lousy editing, we really see an awful lot of the zombie. An entire section of the movie is just him walking through a health club. Yes, two of the murders take place in a health club. I guess they were working with what they had. Okay, so, we've exhaustively talked about why this movie is bad. We've heard from actor Frank Dietz, a bit from John Fasano, the screenwriter, but what about Jack Bravman, the man who directed this movie? Jack was the reason my grandmother was involved. I've mentioned that my grandmother was a film distributor, but I haven't really talked about what that meant in practice. Essentially, what she was doing was buying the rights to these awful B-movies, mostly horror, but also some porn, and reselling them to foreign markets. Finding clients was exceedingly difficult. Often, she would send people screening copies of the movies for evaluation, and they would just release the movies in their country without paying her. And then, to recoup her money, she would be in a position of trying to file a lawsuit in a country where she often didn't speak the language. When things did work out, and she was able to land a deal and get paid for it, the money was usually pretty terrible. Another difficulty of the job was getting the rights to the movies in the first place. In 1985, my grandmother's friend and business contact, Jack Bravman, came to her with a proposal. He needed seed money for a horror movie he was going to shoot up in Canada. She signed on, in exchange for an associate producer credit and some limited distribution rights. So anyway, I wanted to see what Jack's memory of the whole thing was. He lives in Florida now, where he's a real estate agent. Before we get started, I should warn you, we did this call via cell phone, and the sound quality's not great. Hello? Uh, hi, Jack. Yes. Hi, it's Dave Hillowitz. Hey, Dave, how are you? Hey, how's it going? Okay, so I'm going to interrupt the conversation there. Jack was super nice, and he had lots of really kind things to say about my grandmother. We actually ended up talking for over 45 minutes. I'm not going to play you the whole thing, because things got pretty inside baseball pretty quickly, and a lot of what we talked about had nothing to do with the movie. But here's Jack talking about his past career as a porn movie producer, and how that led to him making horror. As you'll hear, he refers to porn movies as X-movies. You know I had done X movies before, correct? You know, adult. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, so your, your, your grandmother helped me with, with some of the X stuff, too. Uh, she she sold some of that. Yeah, you know what changed the business there. We were shooting everything in 35 millimeter. They were real movies. And then all of a sudden, VHS came out. 
But once they went to VHS, anybody could do them. You just took a camera, put two two couples, three couples, and you had a movie. You know. So I I, I did that for a little while, and I said, you know what, this is a joke. You know. It's, so then I ended up uh, doing more of the horror movies. When the conversation came back to Zombie Nightmare, we spoke mostly about how the film got financed and the decision to shoot in Canada. Throughout our chat, one phrase kept coming up again and again, tax shelter. Shelly Goldstein, that was a guy that actually put the money up. He actually financed it, very wealthy guy. And then, of course, we looked at Pierre Grise. He was actually the Canadian connection. And I used to go up to see him. You know why we went up there? It was for the tax shelters. They would give you every dollar you put up, you got a dollar thirty cent write off. So you couldn't lose. You're getting thirty percent of your money. Okay, I have to stop the tape again. Did you catch that? This entire movie that I just spent all this time dissecting was really just an elaborate investment scam? And how would that even work anyway? The only way I could see this as being lucrative is if one were to claim that one had spent a lot more money on the movie than one actually had. Here's Jack again. There was a guy named Roger Racine, and he was the key to the whole operation. He, he passed away about a year ago. He owned all his own equipment and had a studio. So everything we did through him, we could overbill, underbill, and everything like that. He was willing to do it. I said, fine. <laughs> Not my business, you know. But he, he, he supplied all of that. So we had our crew all the time. Okay, I think I'm getting the picture now. But for this particular movie, there's more to this story. The problem with that picture was it never became a tax shelter because there was always an idiot in the group. The guy that was representing Goldstein it was up there, and Grise said to him, you know, we can do this as a tax shelter, because truthfully, we use all Canadian, you know, all the crews were Canadian. And he said, we can do it. We have enough numbers. So Grise said, well, what do I get for it? And the guy said, nothing. So he said, what do you mean nothing? He said, no, we give you nothing. So he said, forget it. We're not going to do it. So that picture never became a tax shelter. Goldstein went up and made two more movies, and they were tax shelters. The Carpenter with Wingshauser and uh, Alien High. Those were the two other ones that we made. Those were tax shelters. He got his money, you know, got a good chunk of his money back as soon as they were made. Okay, so it was meant to be a tax shelter, but apparently wasn't. There were a few other details that came out of my conversation with Jack. The movie took three weeks to shoot. Adam West got paid $25,000 for one week of work, and the rest of the actors each got 1000 As for the movie's budget... Jack says it was 250000 but in the DVD commentary track, John Fasano said the budget was one eighty. It's hard to say if that discrepancy had to do with the tax write-off paperwork or what. Either way, this is obviously not big-budget studio picture money, but then it's not as cheap as you might think. Remember, this is 1985, and they were shooting on film. Anyway, making a movie so that you can get a tax write-off seems like a crazily complicated way to make money. There's so many people involved, so many moving parts, and, as we've heard, the whole thing could easily just fall apart if somebody fails to file the paperwork correctly. It's also an interesting kind of scam because it necessarily yields a piece of art as a byproduct. And sometimes those pieces of art are really interesting. I wanted to know how common these tax shelter movies were, so I reached out to a writer named Paul Cora. Paul lives in Toronto where he runs a website called Canucksploitation, which catalogs just these sorts of movies. And yes, he's got a whole long page on Zombie Nightmare. To get things started, I asked Paul to give us a brief explanation of how these tax shelters worked. It's a complicated topic, but I'll, I'll try to boil it down um, the best I can. So the tax shelters were introduced in Canada essentially to kickstart Canadian filmmaking. The actual tax shelter laws dated all the way back to the 1950s, but it wasn't until the early 1970s that people started using these financial incentives to help uh, make Canadian films. 
So until, let's say, about 1971, 72, Canada would make three to four films a year. There was really not much going on. In the late 60s, they also introduced what's called the Canadian Film Development Corporation, which was intended basically to provide money to films. So once you had the CFTC happening, producers were discovering these tax shelter laws, and suddenly people were a lot more interested in making movies. Essentially, using the tax shelter law, 100% of the money that you would invest in a film would be tax-free. So that rule lasted from about 1975 to about 1982. By the 80s, there was a lot of abuse of the rules as well, and the government decided to change the rules, scale them back. Essentially, instead of 100% of your money being tax-free, they changed it to 50% of your money being tax-free. And that lasted from about 82 till 87. And then they stopped it completely in 87. But Many of the Canadian provinces ended up introducing their own kind of rules and, and credits and, and incentives. So did the tax shelters actually work? If the purpose of the tax shelter uh, rules was to help foster Canadian cinema, it, it happened. We went from three to four films a year to hundreds of films a year. So it did actually work. It helped train everybody in that industry. Did anybody famous come out of that? Oh, absolutely. Um, I guess starting way back in the 70s, you, you would have had Ivan Reitman. Sure. He was a um, university student, and he made a film called Cannibal Girls with uh, Eugene Levy and Andrea Martin before they were in SCTV. And David Cronenberg obviously would not have gotten his start if it wasn't for the tax shelters. It's kind of an interesting experiment that you provide these incentives and then you have all of these people come. Like, how was that perceived in Canada? Like, did people feel like it was successful or did people... The tax shelters are still to this day controversial. Personally, I I believe that they were a good thing. Uh, People were essentially worried that basically, instead of making Canadian films, whatever that is supposed to mean, we were simply copying Hollywood or copying American films. But at the same time, I mean, it must have been a response to American films kind of flooding all the cinemas. That was probably why they instituted in the first place, right? Absolutely. I mean, our theaters were full of American films. I don't know how a Canadian director could not be influenced by Hollywood and American films. I mean, that's 95% and in many cases, 100% of what people in Canada watch. One of the main things that we have had in Canada is because the National Film Board, which started back in the 1930s, but uh, to do kind of wartime propaganda. And then in the 50s, it kind of changed to instructional films and kind of slice of life vignettes and that kind of a thing. So when you've got the tax shelters coming in, suddenly you've got David Cronenberg making films about sexually transmitted parasites, and you've got Ivan Reitman making films about um, half-naked girls killing men. It's a big culture shock, and there was a lot of resistance to those films, and especially because Canada was spending tax dollars through the Canadian Film Development Corporation. There are people who still feel like the tax shelters uh, were a bad thing. And one of the things I've done with my site is kind of tried to bring back a lot of these films that were forgotten or just kind of not included in the canon of Canadian films because what you know they, they weren't considered appropriately Canadian enough. But they are Canadian. We were out producing Hollywood in the 70s. So that's my conversation with Paul Korup. His website, again, is called Canuxploitation, and if you're interested in genre movies, I highly recommend that you check it out. Before we wrap up, there's one more thing I wanted to explore. Having recently rewatched the movie several times and dedicated far more attention to it than it deserves, something keeps bothering me about the plot. But in order to talk about this, I think I need to spoil the twist ending to this movie. So if Zombie Nightmare was on your must-watch list for 2016, you might want to skip this section. But I'm guessing that's not anyone. 
One of the things that makes the least sense in the entire movie is when, after Tony gets run over, the lovable convenience store owner brings the boy's body back to his mother instead of calling the police. Almost anyone who's ever seen this movie has made fun of this scene. It comes up again and again in the YouTube comments and in the MST3K version too. At first I thought it was just bad writing, but then I thought about that twist ending. You see, two things are revealed in the final scene of the movie. One, the girl who was being assaulted in the opening sequence of the movie was the same person as Molly Mokembe, the voodoo priestess. And two, the police chief, Adam West, was one of the two greasers who tried to assault her and the very same guy who killed Tony's father. This entire movie, Molly raising Tony from the dead and manipulating him with candles and voodoo, has not just been about seeking revenge for Tony, but also for her own attack. So no wonder Tony's mother doesn't go to the police. Her husband was murdered by a man who became the police chief. Then I started thinking about this thing that she says right before she calls the voodoo priestess. No! They aren't going to get away with it! They're not going to do it to me again! But who's they? Surely the people who killed her son are not the same people who killed her husband, right? There's also this other thing. Right after the teenagers run over Tony, Tia Carrere's character says this. Well, I mean, like, who cares, you know? He was just another one of them. Weird, right? Why would she say that? Another one of them what? The only way any of this makes any sense at all is if all of these characters, Tony Washington and his family and the convenience store owner, were all originally meant to be African-American. And this was actually meant to be a zombie movie about systemic racist violence repeating itself from one generation to the next. I did a lot of digging, and I was finally able to turn up an interview where John Fasano mentions this. Originally, everyone in the script was supposed to be black. The thing is that back then, it's changed now thanks to Will Smith and Eddie Murphy, but back then, there were entire countries that would not buy the movie if it had a predominantly black cast. Mm -hmm. And when Jack found that out, he said, you got to make all these people white. So in case you were wondering, yes, the same kind of racial bias we talk about today in Hollywood also affected the world of low-rent B-movies. Even though they didn't end up making the movie that John Fasano wanted to, it's kind of interesting that a few elements of that original concept still found their way into the final version. They changed the casting, but the script still bears the traces of another, possibly more interesting movie. Okay, so, I feel like we've come to the end of our journey. Looking back, it's hard to square the existence of this movie with my memories of my grandmother who dedicated almost her entire adult life to her art and who had such exacting tastes. To be perfectly frank, she was kind of a culture snob. A movie like Zombie Nightmare seems like it would be beneath her contempt. And it was. On the few occasions when I asked her about it, all she said was, it wasn't a very good picture. At the same time, movies like this are precisely what allowed her to devote the rest of her time to painting, which meant that in practice, she ended up seeing films more as business than as art. Of course, people like my grandmother weren't the only ones to benefit from B-movies like this. When Paul Korup says that ultimately these tax incentives did work, that they did get more people involved in the film industry, we can see that that's true even within this one movie we've been looking at. In fact, if Zombie Nightmare had only one positive effect on the world of film, it's this. It was a launchpad for a ton of people who made real careers for themselves in the movie business. Tia Carrere went on to star in Wayne's World. John Fasano, the screenwriter, wrote the Eddie Murphy sequel Another 48 Hours before directing a ton of movies. Frank Dietz became an animator for Disney. David Franco is now a cinematographer for HBO. And the spaghetti-throwing Sean Levy became the hugely successful director of the Night at the Museum movies. Of course, only some of those people are Canadian. Still, I'm chalking it up as a win in my book. It's like Jack Bravman said, 
was a key movie. There were so many people that did so well out of that movie. The way I see it, Zombie Nightmare is a terrible, terrible movie that any reasonable person should be proud to be associated with. Hope you've enjoyed this episode. I want to thank Jack Bravman and Paul Quirk for making the time to talk, as well as Frank Dietz. Frank has a bunch of monster movie-related projects up on Kickstarter, including a best-of book of his sketch art. I'd also like to thank my wife, Emily, who listened to countless versions of this episode and gave me great feedback. If you enjoyed this, you can subscribe to this podcast that's Sample Size 1. And if you're feeling generous, it would be amazing if you'd rate the episode on iTunes. It makes a huge difference. Thanks for listening.